So today we're reading from Exodus. I know you're surprised. <laughs> so let's start in uh, chapter 19. I'm going to read the first seven verses of chapter 19, and then we're going to look at chapter 21 through 17, if you're going to follow along. So on the first day of the third month, after the Israelites left Egypt, on that very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. And after they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. Now in chapter 20, and God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love and to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, neither you nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals, nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. So Moses comes down off the mountain. He's tired, haggard. He's carrying two stone tablets, and they look like they weigh about 1,000 pounds each. He says to the people of Israel, I've got good news, and I've got bad news. The good news is I talked him down from 20 to 10. <laughs> the bad news is, is that murder and adultery are still in there. My uh, grandparents were snowbirds. They traveled to Yuma, Arizona every winter to avoid Saskatchewan's harsh cold. And when I was about one year old, my parents took me to visit them. We got there, and it was like 35 degrees Celsius. 
and there's this pristine, crystal clear pool in the center of this trailer complex. And my dad practically sprints through the chain link fence to leap into this thing. And no sooner does his head break the water than he hears a chorus of voices saying, no jumping in the pool. I think sometimes when we get to passages like this in Scripture, we start thinking about God like he's some sort of cosmic fun sucker. Like he's the guy writing those long lists of pool rules that don't allow you to have anything, do anything fun. Like you're not allowed to do anything that begins with, hey, y'all, watch this. And we can think that when Moses came down the mountain, somehow this was a heavy thing for him, a hard thing for him, something that the people wouldn't like to hear about. But I'm here to tell you today that the law of God is not just pool rules. They're swimming lessons. These are teachings handed down to us to help us live the abundant life. Over and over again, we didn't read the whole chapter today, but over and over again in the chapter, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. It's like before he gives them the law, he has to remind them time and time and time again, I am not here to subdue your freedom. I am here to enhance it. Law, as we'll learn, isn't even the right word to use to describe what we just read. And I think... For some reason, this is starting to become an inroad for some people into the gospel. Because in a world where we have absolute freedom from any rules, any boundaries, people are starting to get hungry for them. Go to chapters this afternoon. What's the largest section that's nonfiction in the store? Health, wellness, self-help. What are you going to find there? Well, one, you might actually find Pastor Dave's new book there. Huh? Okay, so I had to just find a way to work this in. So Dave has written a book on preaching, and it's great. If you teach in Christian education or do anything, it's awesome. But at the pastor's retreat that we went to, somebody looked him up on Amazon, and if you look up Dave Fields on Amazon, this is the first thing that comes up. <laughs> He's got a bright future ahead of him, I think. But go into that self-help section. And you are going to find rules. Lots of them. You should probably take a cold plunge first thing in the morning at 5.15. You should probably eat more greens. You know, you should probably keep a to-do list that's only five items long. Literally, yesteryear's bestseller was a book called 12 Rules for Life. We're hungry for direction on how to live. We crave it like nothing else, and Scripture is full of it. It is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us. The big idea today is just this. God wants us to live the abundant life in relationship with him. So he teaches us what he values. Michelle and I went to Trinity Western University. I told some of the men this on the retreat. Trinity Western boasts a three-to-one ratio. That is not students to professors or sandwiches to mouths. That is three young ladies for every young man. 
It's apparently not true. It's more like 1.5 to 1. But because of that, Trinity is heartbreak city. Like, big time. Michelle and I, after we graduated, we lived in a condo overlooking the Fort Fort Trail. Fort Langley is about two clicks from Trinity. And we would watch, in, on the weekends, we would sit in our balcony and watch in the evening. You would see a young lady and a young man. The young lady would be all dolled up and excited. The young man would be in, like, sweats and a sweater, like, shrugging. And they would walk down the trail, and then they would come back. But the girl would be 20 steps ahead, wiping tears from her eyes, and he would be, like, kicking the dirt behind. Or, other times, they would walk down the trail, both all dolled up, and then they would come to a point where there was a dock, and they would go to the end of the dock, and they would do what hormone-laden young adults do when they've just sealed the deal. And we would turn to each other, Michelle and I, and we would sigh, and we would say, ah, DTRs. They just defined the relationship. Well, Sinai is basically God's DTR with Israel. This is the moment when he defines the relationship with them. That's the context we're supposed to see all the commandments within. In 19, Exodus 19, 4 to 6 or 7, we read, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me and fully, fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. It's almost romantic language. I picked you up. I carried you. You'll be my treasure. And at the center of it all, the thing that's really happening at Sinai is covenant. This is the highest form of relationship you can ever have with a person, but it doesn't, we don't really even do it anymore in our culture. We never talk about it, right? He says, you, if you keep my covenant. Well, a covenant is just this. A covenant is an identity-changing relationship that is solidified by a promise to pursue an ideal or a commitment to pursue an ideal. So the one covenant we still have in our culture is marriage. I can remember the day that I stood up on a platform and I put this ring on my finger and I said, I do. And I, I would like go to the grocery store and be like, I don't know, picking eggs or something. And I would have this moment where this like, not a burden, but like a weight would come on me. And I'm like, I am not just Ricky picking eggs anymore. I am Ricky picking eggs for Ricky and Michelle. I am responsible for more than just myself. I am now a husband. My identity has fundamentally been altered. And no matter what happens, I don't know what your story is in marriage, and I'm sorry if it's been a hard one, but you're fundamentally changed forever, right? There, some part of you will always be tied to that other person. It's changed who you are forever. And even more importantly, even if you're a bad husband or a bad wife, you are still a husband or wife. Because you made a promise on that day to pursue an ideal. So one of the promises that you probably made was to love and cherish forever. If you're married in this room, hands up if you have perfectly loved and cherished for your entire marriage. Every day. Anybody. You guys are pretty bad at this. Sounds like you all need to go home and have some conversations. No, it's not. It's impossible. That's the point. 
The point is, is that you stood on that platform and you made promises that are almost impossible to keep because they were a vision of an ideal, of the way it should be when two people are in relationship. And the thing falls apart not just when somebody breaks the rules, but when somebody breaks the rules and stops pursuing the ideal. And that's why God doesn't just get rid of Israel every time they sin, right? If they sin, he chastises them and they repent, they're fine because the promise is to keep pursuing the ideal. And the laws, the commandments, the Torah, everything that follows, this is a vision, an ideal. This is what it's supposed to be like if you are that holy nation, that kingdom of priests. Now, Christians have trouble reading the law sometimes. Part of the reason is, is because of what Jesus did. If you're new to the faith, it's just important to know this. Because of what Jesus did on the cross, we've been given a new covenant, a new way of relating, kind of a new ideal. And part of that is that some of the specific purity laws and holiness codes that you'll get into later in Exodus and Leviticus don't actually apply to Christians anymore. But there's another reason. Because if we believe that, the law can be really boring. Like, really, like, I'll admit it, I know this is a safe place, or I hope it is, but I've skipped the book of Leviticus and Bible reading plans, okay? Right? Because it's literally just a book of, like, rule after rule after rule. And unless I was very, very tired and couldn't fall asleep, then sometimes I would open it up and it, would, it was better than a zoffel comb, right? Like, that can knock you out sometimes. But I skipped it. Until I had my perspective changed a little bit. I had some things opened up for me, and I want to kind of do that for us today. One of the easiest ways to change your perspective on what law is and how to read it as a Christian instead of as a Jewish person comes from a, a little bit of a language shift. Most of the time you'll hear the word law, the English word law used to translate the Hebrew word Torah. But Torah is more than just rules in Hebrew. Torah actually usually means like instruction or teaching. And I think that's an important thing to keep in mind whenever we're reading the so-called rules. These are not just rules. As I said, they're not pool rules. They're swimming lessons, right? These aren't just rules. They're a window into how God wants us to live and be. They're a window into what God values. Behind every negative commandment, there is a positive value, something that God wants for us. And Jesus spoke explicitly about this. Actually, on another mountain, just like this scene where Moses is up on the mountain, Jesus stood on a mountain and gave God's word to people. And one of the things that he said, that he made very, very clear in Matthew 5, is do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them. And then he shows us kind of what he means by this. He actually takes one of the Ten Commandments. He says, You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. So what Jesus is doing is he's looking at his culture, the, the Jewish community of his day, and he's saying, You guys are kind of missing the point. You're trying to take things to the minimum. You think, oh, I'm keeping covenant and being godly if I haven't killed anybody today, or if I haven't told a lie, or if I've kept Sabbath. 
And Jesus is saying that's never what it was about. That's the minimum, right? That's the bare minimum of what's going on in Torah. But there's something more. And I think one of the reasons that I can say that Jesus wasn't making up anything new is actually because of the 10th commandment. Now, another fun fact. The 10 commandments are never called commandments in Scripture. They're actually just called the 10 words. And I prefer to to speak and think of them after some study this week as the 10 teachings. And the 10th teaching says, you shall not covet. But there are no punishments if you covet. Because coveting is a desire thing. Coveting is a heart thing. Coveting is an intention thing. So right from the beginning, God wasn't just laying down rules. He was laying down rules as an opportunity for people to transform their hearts, their intentions, their character, to become the people that God had made them to be. Now, from this moment on, there's going to be 613 laws in the rest of the Old Testament, 613. And if that's like God's Spotify library of teachings for the abundant life, the Ten Commandments are like God's top ten, his most played. They're the distillation of what all that other stuff is about. And just something that's important to know, Jesus affirms all ten of the commandments. We're still under the Ten Commandments as Christians. Sabbath gets changed a little bit. Not that much. Not as much as we think it does, I think. But he still affirms the ten. So what I want to do for us now is just take a look at the ten teachings through this framework. Through this framework of them as teachings. Of them as something that shows us what God values and what he's about. Because as I said, God wants us to live the abundant life. That's going to be in a relationship with him, a covenant relationship with him. And to do that, he teaches us what he values through these commandments, through these laws. He values three things. His preeminence, his reputation, and our flourishing. There's much more there. Books have been written on the Ten Commandments, the Ten Teachings, but that's what we're going to take a look at today. So, the very opening of Exodus 20, which I think needs to be included when you think of the commandment or the teaching in verse 2 is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So right at the forefront, what Yahweh's doing is he's saying, look what I've done for you. All on my own initiative, before you've done anything, I have singled you out, I have pulled you out of slavery and brought you to myself. And now everything that follows in this list, after all I've given you, I ask for only one thing. Everything. You're everything. That's what it means when he says, you shall have no other gods before me. He's preeminent. He's first. That's what it means when he says, you shouldn't bow down to other gods. There's a theologian, Alan Hirsch, who's got a really interesting perspective on what it means to say that God is one and why this is so important for the Bible. He writes that in the Hebraic perspective, that's in the perspective of Israel, monotheism, the idea that there's one God, is not so much a statement about God as eternal being and essential oneness, but rather an existential claim that there's only one God and he is the Lord of every aspect of life. So all of life... All of love, everything, finds its meaning, its purpose, and its fulfillment in one place, God. 
Yahweh. You maybe thought about or heard about the idea of like a cultural Christian, right? Or somebody, you know, you might call them a hypocrite. Somebody who says and acts and does one set of things in church and around churchy people and who does and says and acts different ways in other areas of life. For the Bible, that's worshiping other gods. That's what polytheism is. Because polytheism is saying the god of church is not the god of business, is not the god of family, is not the god of my leisure time. And the biblical perspective, what, what Jesus teaches us, what the law teaches us, is that the God of church is the God of family, is the God of business, is the God of leisure time. So the whole biblical response to that self-help section at chapters is summarized by Jesus in one sentence, two concepts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That is the answer. That's it. Everything, everything finds its meaning, its purpose, and its fulfillment there. I feel stuck in my marriage. I don't know what, I do, what to do. I don't know what to do next. Great. Turn to God. I, I'm trying to make a business deal. I'm not sure where to go. I don't know what's ethical. I don't know what isn't. Great. Turn to God. I, I'm not sure which car to buy. I need a new car, and I'm between two or three of them. Great, turn to God. Not because he's going to like download information into your brain, but if that relationship is right, that relationship is good and true and pure, the other stuff falls into place. Jesus taught about anxiety. One of his solutions to the whole problem of fear and anxiety was this, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. All life. Everything, every part of it finds its meaning and purpose in him. Him first over everything else. One of the other things that God values is his reputation. So teaching three, you know, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God is often like, I don't know, we were disc golfing yesterday, and it's like, you know, if I use the name of our Lord and Savior when I threw into a tree two feet in front of me, I've broken the third commandment. That's what a lot of people think, right? saying Jesus when you stub your toe. That's part of it. It's not all of it. In fact, the Hebrew of this commandment is you should not carry or bear the name of the Lord your God in vain. And commandment two comes in here a little bit too because teaching two teaches us that we're not supposed to make images of Yahweh either, right? Hebrews, Jewish people don't make pictures of God. Why? Well, Chris Wright says, because you can't use a dead thing to represent a living thing. You can't use a mute thing to represent the God who speaks. And after all, God has made an image of himself. You. The living, breathing, walking, talking being. As the image of God, as someone in covenant with him, you are responsible for God's reputation. Like, actually. That's how much he's given us. We are responsible for the reputation of the Most High God. That's why how we act outside of this place matters. That's why things like church abuse are such a big deal. Because we are writing God's name wrong when we live that way. 
He values his reputation, and he's made it part of our responsibility. Now, the next grouping of teachings usually gets categorized under justice. But I would say it's not just about justice, because justice is to enable something. Justice and the idea of having law and punishment is there to protect something. And I think it's there to protect our flourishing. One of the dreams of my heart, just like I have... I don't have a lot of them. I'm not like a super ambitious guy. But one of the things that I really, really want, and it's kind of weird, is I would love to have a property with a fruit tree. Just one, even. Part of that's because I grew up in Saskatchewan, and all we could grow was crab apples that were so bitter, your whole body would, like, crumble into a ball every time you ate one of them. Like, unless you, like, jammed them with three cups of sugar, they were useless. And the first time I went to the Okanagan with my wife, it was when the peaches were ripe. And I, like, stepped out of our bed and breakfast and grabbed a peach off the tree that was, like, still hot from the Okanagan sun and took a bite out of it. And I was like, kill me now. (laughs) It doesn't get better than this. Like, that's heaven, folks. But actually, it kind of is. Because in the prophets, you get this idea that when things are right when everything is working the way it should. The, the vision for it that Micah in particular gives is everyone will sit under their own vine and under their own fig tree, and no one will make them afraid. That's what all these commandments are about. See, the vision that God has for our flourishing is one where we can work with our hands and enjoy the fruit of our labor without fear of exploitation or theft or murder, or somebody, you know, coming and stealing something from us, and that if they do, if they do transgress those boundaries, there will be restitution. That's what this is about. That's the type of world that God wants us to live in, and doesn't it sound good? Now, we could break just a subgrouping of these, I think these teachings are a little bit more about things that we should value to to help us move towards this vision. And the first thing that we see with teachings about um, not swearing under oath falsely or uh, maintaining sexual integrity in marriage is the idea that God wants us to value integrity. Now, not a lot of us think that truthfulness in speech or integrity is like one of the most fundamental building blocks of society. But think about in 2002 when President Bush stood up and said, there is no doubt that Saddam Hussein now has weapons of mass destruction. A blatant lie. We can argue and fight with each other about whether or not we think the war they engaged in was right, but that was a lie that cost trillions of dollars and thousands of lives. Lies cost lives. Period. There was another guy, uh, a famous reporter who was like the man in Moscow during the 30s, and he said of the, uh, there was, Stalin was collectivizing farms in the Ukraine, and this guy, I don't think he ever actually went to the Ukraine to look, but he said, hey, there's no famine or actual starvation, nor is there likely to be. He said that while three to four million people were starving to death. And because of his statement, most of the West was like, okay, cool. What's happening over there is fine. Lies cost lives. And they start small. I was reading this, this like cheesy Christian book to my niece last week, and it was about this. It's like this kid wants to go hang out and watch the scary movie that he knows he's not allowed to watch, and he has to tell like a small lie to his mom. 
but then she is like, oh, well, I'll come with you then. So then he has to tell a bigger lie, and then he has to tell a bigger lie, and then he has to tell a bigger lie, right? Lies grow. So truthfulness is one of the most basic things that we need as a foundation for our flourishing. The other thing that we see God valuing here is uh, the household, we could say. The only commandment that's given or the only teaching given without a prohibition is honor your father and mother. And there's always been some confusion about the statement that comes after that, where it says, and you will live long in the land that your Lord is giving you. And I don't know, I come from like a prosperity gospel context, so people are like, if you're nice to mom and dad, you'll live to 100. It's not what it's about, but I do love you, mom and dad. (laughs) This is about staying in the promised land. What Yahweh is saying is if the household is in order, elders are respected, then the land, the country, flourishes. And this has been a teaching of the church for centuries. The household is the basic unit of society. What happens in the household bleeds out into everything. Now, if you're here, you'll notice I'm not using the word family, and I'm not using it for a reason. Because the New Testament expands the concept of family beyond the boundaries of blood relatives. Right? We're family in this room now. And Christians for centuries and right up to today have taken that very seriously and actually lived together beyond the boundaries of the nuclear family for this reason. And if family's a mess, it doesn't mean you've done a bad job. Go read Genesis again, and it reads like a like reality TV show set in Beverly Hills or something like that, right? Like Abraham impregnates his wife's handmaiden. Like imagine the dinner conversation, right? while she's serving them, okay? It gets messy, but working towards order and flourishing within our households is the best thing we can do, not just for ourselves, but for the entire world. And that involves, as Teaching 5 teaches, um, or Teaching 7 teaches, the sexual integrity within the marriage, right? Not committing adultery. Finally, the last thing I think we can see, and this one really hit me hard recently, is that God wants us to value having contentment, having contented trust, I would say. Uh, During the pandemic, one of the things that happened was churches went online, and I was a music pastor at a different church at the time, and I would watch these other churches, and they had, like, the lights, and they had the, like, $10,000 guitars, and I knew they had the team of, like, six people, and I would sit, and I would boo-hoo, and I would whine, and I'd be like, Jesus, can't you just give me, like, a hundred grand more, and maybe, like, two or three people so we can do something as cool as this? And I felt that little whisper say, Ricky, do not covet. And it like hit me for the first time ever. Coveting is in a list with adultery, murder, theft, and false witness. And in our image-driven, materialistic society, coveting, wanting what other people have, is our economic policy. It's what we use to make the world go round. You know, one guy says that the Ten Commandments end where every sin begins. And I think what God wants us to learn to do as his people is to be content with what we have. 
And the Sabbath is one of the ways that we teach ourselves to do that. Because God says a seventh of your time, a whole seventh of your time is set aside for rest. You stop working, you stop the productivity, and you sit there and you enjoy what you have. And if you try it, I just wonder if at the end of that seventh day, you don't look around and say, man, I'm blessed. Man, I have more than I need. Man, you're, God, you've been taking care of me. I'm sitting here doing nothing. And, and still, you're making the world go round. I guess I can trust you. So, what we see, I think, and I hope you're agreeing with me at this point, is that God wants an abundant life for us. So he wants it in relationship with him, and to do that, he teaches us what he values. The worship team can come up now, and um, actually, you can just stand. When it comes to closing today, I felt honestly a little burdened by it. Because I think a lot of us in this room, whether we admit it to ourselves or not, or whether we, not, we even really know, we're like walking on the Fort to Fort Trail side by side with Yahweh right now, trying to define the relationship, trying to barter with him, saying, hey, you, you can have that, but you can't have this. I'll trust you over here, but I'm not going to trust you over here. And I wonder, I wonder if as we sing and as we pray, I wonder if the Holy Spirit is asking us, why don't you give me everything? Why don't you give me it all? And maybe I pray that as you sing and as you worship and as you go from this place, he'll reveal to you the places where he wants just a little bit more. Because I really believe this, friends. He wants so much more than good for you. It may not look the way you think it needs to look. It may not feel the way you think it needs to feel. But he wants your good. He wants you.